Welcome to the Entrepreneurial Nonprofit Podcast. My name is Ken Thiessen, and I'm going to be your host on today's podcast. Katie is with The Great Game of Business, and she takes the principles and concepts of The Great Game of Business developed by Jack Stack. Principles and concepts that have developed uh, helped countless businesses around the world increase their profitability, revenue, and employee engagement. Now, Now, before some of you are tempted to tune out this podcast, let me tell you that Katie has used these principles. Katie has used these uh, principles and concepts with non-profits producing the same results. Katie worked with Big Brothers, Big Sisters of the Ozarks for nine years, where she implemented the great game of business, principles and concepts, uh, and with that nor- nonprofit organization. Katie, welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to spend some time with me and our audience in this interview. So tell our audience how you ever got hooked up with the team at the great game of business and how you've used their, pro- their process with nonprofit organizations, specifically Big Brothers, Big Sisters of the Ozarks. Sure. Thank you for having me. So um, I moved to uh, Springfield, Missouri, which is actually the home base of Great Game of Business, uh, fresh out of college. And I knew no one in the city. And so I went to a Chamber uh, of Commerce networking event for young professionals. And it was just my luck that our, our keynote speaker for that day was Jack Stack. And I remember listening to all of the concepts of open book management and how he ran his uh, large manufacturing company, um, all open book and and the success they had and the camaraderie he built. And I remember leaving thinking, wow, if I ever work for a for-profit company, I sure hope that it's run like that because that sounds like an amazing, amazing way to run a business. At the time, I was working at Big Brothers Big Sisters, and never did I put the two together that I could apply some of the things that Jack was talking about at Big Brothers Big Sisters. I simply just saw it as something that only private companies could do. Uh, So fast forward, uh, three years later, I get uh, catapulted into the executive director position at Big Brothers Big Sisters. A very young age, um, and uh, one of the general managers of SRC, uh, which is the uh, parent company of, of the Great Game of Business, just happened to be joining our board at the same time. And so he, I think, saw fresh meat. He saw uh, someone young and maybe open to, open to some new ideas, and he just asked the simple question hey, have you ever considered playing the great game at Big Brothers Big Sisters? And I was a little shocked by the question because I didn't even think that that was a possibility. And so he actually spent six years, which is about our board term limit, he spent all his six years on the board helping me adapt the proven principles of the great game in in the nonprofit world and and. It was definitely a great journey, and we had a huge success because of it. Well, and Jack has uh, featured your story in his new book, Change the Game, and um, you did some pretty radical stuff there. I mean, you you incorporated an incentive bonus for your yes. team members. <laughs> now, I can imagine that in most nonprofits, if you if I don't if if an executive director came to the board and said, you know, I want to offer incentive bonuses to our staff. That might send some of them into cardiac arrest. How did your board respond when you said, this is what I think we're going to do? Well, I think a key in my success, because if you can't find a peer or someone you look up to that's already doing it, it's kind of a hard sell to a board usually. And the key to my success was it was being suggested by a board member who was very highly respected among the board. So I definitely had that in my favor. And in fact, fact, I think it was almost the other way around. He was telling me how it would be okay instead of me convincing them. And so I had a master's in nonprofit management. And so I knew what theory was. I knew what the ethics were behind it. Um, I had all the book knowledge of how it wouldn't work. And he helped show me how, um, you know, 
we we play by different rules a lot of times in in the nonprofit sector and how they could be adjusted so that we could incentivize our staff. I think where people hear bonus um, or year end bonus in a nonprofit where they start getting really uh, queasy or uncomfortable or start shifting in their chairs when they start seeing that it it might be a commission. So if you have profit at the end of the year and you share that profit with your employees, yes, that would not be a correct thing to do. That's unethical. That's profit sharing. That's why nonprofits are different than private businesses. And so I think really making the distinction on we're not profit sharing, our bonuses are not just dividing up the profit that we have at the end of the year. Um, Making that distinction is really key and tying the incentives to growing your mission Mm -hmm. instead of just dividing up the profit was the huge differentiation and really a learning opportunity for all of us uh, for how that had to be different. So what were some of the incentives you put in place that uh, if, you know, your team hit their targets, they would get a little bit of a bonus? Well, you know, we were really um, seeing our numbers for the first time when I became executive director because we had gotten this new uh, database that our national office was putting into place and it was showing our rankings. And so there's about 300 at the time, Big Brothers, Big Sisters nationwide, and it showed us how we compared to all of those other nonprofits. And so we're all providing the same service. So once we saw those numbers, um, it was a little disheartening. We we saw really where we were struggling, um, and we provide positive role models to children who really need that in their life right now. And so we started seeing how other cities were doing a much better job than we were. And so we were focused on one number and they were focused on another number. And so we really started to look at actually the length and the quality of the match a lot more than just how many matches did we make? Mm. Because you can make, you know, four matches for three months each. But what we, what we really wanted was one match for over a year. And mm-hmm. so making that shift, um, because all the research was showing us that the impact, the long lasting impact on the child came after you hit the year mark. So why did we care how many matches we made if they weren't making it to the year mark? Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, really looking at the numbers and saying, we call in the for-profit world, you call it a competitive analysis or benchmarking, and nonprofits will always say, well, we don't have any competitors. (laughs) And so we look at our other Big Brothers Big Sisters agencies as our, quote, competitors, not that we're stealing business from them, but we can learn from them. Um, And by looking at their numbers, and it's a great benchmarking tool that, that significantly shifted all of our thinking. So when you when you kind of started focusing on uh, kind of not the number of matches, but the length of the match, what kind of incentive did you offer to your team? So we had actually um, our critical number was called uh, open matches and you can affect open matches in two ways you can uh, or active matches. You can open more matches or you can close less matches. And so we started looking at the drivers to how can we open more matches, but we have to make sure once it's open, it doesn't close. So we're not just going to pull people off the street and get to get an open match knowing they might close. So we started looking at that. And so our active match number, obviously we wanted growth year over year, right? Mm -hmm. And then we were looking at how other people were growing in other cities. And so we actually did some research. We went out to other cities and we looked at what they were doing. And we just wanted to make sure that we were making the right decisions to keep that active match number open. And so we put out quarterly goals for our staff about how many active matches. And then we actually forecasted 
how many we would open and how many we would close in order to hit that active match number. And so that was something, again, that was a little different for our staff is forecasting out what we were going to do in the future instead of looking backwards at what we did in the past, right? So, uh, a lot of times, oh, go ahead. And so what you wanted to see is you wanted to see more active matches and less closed matches, right, in the quarter. Exactly, exactly. Cool. And so uh, we put a monetary incentive behind that, though. And we said, if you hit this number, you can earn um, this monetary incentive uh, behind it. Now, the catch was, in order to be a sustainable nonprofit, you can't pay incentives on hitting program goals if you have no extra money. Yeah. <laughs> and so there had to be this other number behind there to ensure our financial stability. So we had to teach our staff both. We had to teach them how to affect the program numbers, but then we also had to uh, teach them how to affect the financials. And it's not just the development or fundraising staff focusing on the financial part and the program staff focusing on the match part. It was everyone focusing on it together. And I think that's where a lot of nonprofits fall short mm -hmm. of any type of incentive or compensation program that they have for their staff. The program people have a program number to hit and the development people have a fundraising number to hit. Mm -hmm. Well, that does not create great teamwork in an organization. No. And so what I love about the great game is everyone wins or everyone loses every time. And so there's no individual incentives. We hit these numbers and we all get rewarded as a team. We don't hit these numbers and we don't get rewarded as a team. Hmm. And so what that created is this very fluid type of teamwork. Um, it almost like took out the need for departments because if program was struggling on a program number, everyone figured out what they needed to do to help them. If we were struggling everybody on a finance. Win. Everybody win. It would win if program won, right? <laughs> correct. Correct. Whereas before, if you hit a fundraising number, you might receive a, a financial benefit for it. And meanwhile, your program numbers are awful. So someone's getting rewarded and the organization overall is not winning. Uh, completely doesn't make sense. Um, but, you know, it, it's traditional because people would always say, well, I have no control over that part of the organization. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's simply what the great game tries to do is say, well, let me, let me show you how you can affect that part of the organization. Let me teach you how you can affect that part of the organization so that you can have something to do with it. So your, your program number that they were shooting for, was it increased revenue coming out of programs or reducing program expenses or what was, how, what was the number? It was net income. It was net income. And so the first year we really just wanted to uh, focus people on how the organization makes money and how the organization spends their money. Mm -hmm. And Every single person in the organization could get, we call it line of sight, they could get some type of view from where they sit every day, how they're either contributing to an expense or how they could help with a revenue. And at first they were like, well, the only way that I can help with the financial number is by take, taking a pay cut. So you're asking me to take a pay cut. And, or, or I'm not going to turn in my mileage reimbursement this month. That's how I can help with the financials. And uh, so it was a lot of uh, education at the beginning to know that's not what we mean. We're, you know, everyone in nonprofit, the nonprofit world loves to make sacrifices for the mission, but we want you to be, uh, you're, you're already making a sacrifice. So let's think of other ways. And so what we would do is we would, again, look to our peers. Well, it turns out that uh, the, the most likely donor at Big Brothers Big Sisters are volunteers. Those are the best donors that any organization could have. Mm -hmm. 
Had the program staff ever asked one of their volunteers for money before? <laughs> right, no, that's not their job, first of all. It's what they said at first. And they're, the volunteers are already giving of their time. I'm definitely not going to ask them for money. So that was the story that we told ourselves at the beginning. Once we started all having a common goal of net income, and we revisited that statistic, and we said, okay, so we know nationally that our volunteers are our best donors. Do you think now <laughs> maybe we could ask them? Uh, and then it started shedding a little bit of light of, well, yeah, I guess we could invite them to an event, and then if they wanted to give money there, they could. And then it escalated into, okay, well, I saw a volunteer, you know, come to volunteer orientation um, in a nicer car, and they were talking about their vacation home, and I think they might actually be a good donor for us, you know, so just getting some of those uh, things that our development staff are already so in tuned to, to start getting our, our program staff to be a little more in tune to it as well. Well, it's really about getting the changing the mindset of your program staff, right? To kind exactly. of think, think bigger picture. Um, yeah, right. and, and I mean, you know, and, and and sometimes they get so involved in the mission that they don't take the time to take a step back and say, what if, what if we made some changes, you know? Right. So I, I you know, you know, I do work with, you know, strategic planning work with nonprofits. So I was working with a client recently and one of the exercises we do is called the power of one. So if you were to increase your revenue by 1% and decrease your expenses by 1%, what impact would that have on your bottom line? So we mm -hmm. started working. I had the whole leadership team in the room and we started working through their financials. And by the time we had got done that exercise, they had found another $78,000 and they were absolutely stunned. <laughs> Amazing. And uh, yeah, I mean, just kind of looking at things from a different perspective, um, it's amazing that, you know, and I mean, I can imagine that as your, as your, uh, your staff started seeing some of the results of this, that, I mean, not only does it build, you know, collaboration between your various teams, but the engagement level goes up and I mean, they get excited about what, what, you know, the, the changes and the impact they can have, right? Right. And, you know, the best part about it is we, we looked at these numbers every week in a meeting that we call the huddle. And wow. so they were able to look and see the incremental change every single week because it can be kind of daunting to look at one big number and mm -hmm. say, well, we're never, you know, going to, to hit that. But once you back it up, right, into those monthly goals and then revisit those weekly, you could see the light bulb start to turn on and you could well, see that, okay, I think this actually might work. And so well, we and saw it. The good thing about Jack's process is that it's all open book. There's no hiding right. stuff, right? I mean, it's, it's right. there for everybody to see. And so, you know, if one department's behind or ahead, you know, I mean, Hey, you can cheer them on if they're behind then other teams can come in and say, okay, how do we help you? <laughs> You know, exactly. how can we work together to, you know, because, you know, like you say, uh, it, either everybody wins or nobody wins, right? Right. And I think that was a huge thing for us uh, because there was just so much divide between the departments. And for them to actually see how they could positively affect each other and to hear them, you know, voicing that appreciation. Wow, thank you so much. That would have been impossible for me to make that ask. Since you had the relationship, it was so much easier. Mm -hmm. um, that just saved us six months, you know. And so, you know, getting them to release how they could benefit from each other rather than, um, you know, well, I'm doing my job. I don't know why everyone else can't just do their job too. And then we would meet our goals. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it really broke down those walls um, that I think exist a lot in, in different nonprofits. And it really made my job easier um, as the leader because when we had an issue, I knew that when I left that day, there were 13 other people in my organization also thinking about how to solve that issue. And mm. so that loneliness that you feel at the top yeah. um, is uh, almost 
gone because you have no secrets. You're not carrying any extra weight. Um, you're actually spreading that weight to your employees who are happy to take it because they feel valued that they can be part of the solution. So you left Big Brothers Big Sisters and now you uh, you work uh, with Jack at the Great Game of Business and your focus is on working with, exclusively with nonprofits as I understand it, uh, kind of helping yes. other nonprofits implement implement uh, the play the game, right? <laughs> Right. Yeah. So we, um, like I said, we had huge success at Big Brothers Big Sisters. Um, we actually ended up winning Agency of the Year out of, you know, the the three hundred some agencies, and we got a lot of attention from it. Um, a lot of other Big Brothers Big Sisters were asking us if we could teach them how to do this. Um, the locally, the nonprofits were asking me if I could help um, them try and do a few things. And so um, it was great for the agency um, because we were getting a lot of attention in the press, which led to more donations and volunteers. But I got to the point where I was like, the, the agency has this. They don't need me um, as the leader. The, the staff can take this and continue with success. So I had two kids at home that were very little. So I stepped back and um, the phone calls kept coming. And so I, I told everyone, oh, I'm, you know, I'm staying at home now. I'm not really going to, you know, be doing this. And they just said, can you, can you just meet with me? Can you just tell me one thing? And so that's kind of how it, it organically evolved into what we now call great game for social sectors. And so we really just define social sectors as any private business. Uh, I'm sorry, any non-private business. So that could be um, a non-for-profit hospital. Um, it could be a government. It could be education, public universities. Um, so anything that's not private, we consider in the social sectors. And so um, lots of them had been self-implementing beforehand. Um, and so um, over the past three years, we've worked with <clears throat> a couple dozen organizations really coaching them into the implementation. And it's been very exciting to see that the same things that I was able to implement at Big Brothers Big Sisters can be applied in a wide array, um, churches, um, hospitals, um, and they can be applied in the same exact way. And I always joke um, in my workshop that I'm trying to take the six years that I spent with my board member convincing him of how we're different. I try and take that six years of learning uh, and give it to them in a, in a much more bridged version. Uh, they don't have to go through all the painful lessons that I learned along the way. So, and, and Jack's got some great case studies in, in his book, you know, I mean, it's interesting when yes. you talk about government and I love the chapter in his book where he talks about, you know, working with, uh, you know, a local government and actually getting a local government to implement some of the, the principles of the great game. And you don't think of a local government uh, as being the kind of organization that might be open to this, but I mean, you know, as you, as you get some traction and you get, get somebody who's willing to take the chance on it and they see the impact of it, um, it really builds credibility for them and also, you know, then you can go to other agencies who are similar and, uh, you know, say to them, look, we've worked with this, this government agency here and uh, uh, this is the impact it had there. So, so yeah, so, so if you've worked with other, you know, nonprofits and helped them implement the great game of business, what, uh, what have you seen it's from some, what's been the biggest hurdle to get them to buy into it? Well, you know, that we always say there's 10 steps to implementing the great game. And the first step is begin with the right leadership. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times I say, we just need to get to step one. <laughs> mm -hmm. And we, um, in a nonprofit, it's interesting because who is the leader of a nonprofit? Uh, so you immediately might say the executive director or the CEO, of course, but they have a boss, right? Mm -hmm. It's the board president. Mm -hmm. And so that has really been um, some of the, the biggest challenges. Who do you convince that this is the right thing to do? 
And so um, I have fortunately seen it work both ways where, you know, the board member thinks it's a great idea and is trying to convince the executive director or the executive director thinks it's a great idea and is trying to convince the board. Um, so I think it goes both ways. Um, but it is definitely one of the first hurdles to overcome is um, how this might be um, a great way to run the nonprofit. And so typically there's two reasons they would want to do this. One, they're hurting really bad. So their, you know, their sustainability is in question. They're low on cash reserves. Um, they, you know, they're not sure they're going to exist in the future. Um, and the other one is they're getting ready to take their organization to the next level. And so they're stable, but steady, and they want to enhance their mission. They want to double growth. They want to, you know, go into a new territory. They want to expand their mission to different services. And so those are really kind of the two events that usually spark um, an organization to want to kind of do this. And usually that motivates them to either help convince their board or the board convince their executive director to take it to the next level. And then, you know, a lot of people think, oh, well, we're already open book because nonprofits have to, um, they have to share their financials. And so um, that's a another one a, a kind of a myth to dispel is that it's not about showing your financials you can report all you want what your financials are but does anyone understand what they can do to affect them yeah um and so that's you know again something we fell into the trap of is we would only present our financials at a board meeting our staff would know if good is black red is had, but that's it. <laughs> yeah. And the same with the program numbers. We would get all these very complex reports from our national office, um, but they didn't know how their actions every single day would affect changing a number on that scoreboard. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it's some, there's something very powerful in taking your staff and showing them how they can change their behavior and tying that behavior change to an actual number that is showing up on one of those reports. Uh, burnout is a huge issue in nonprofits. Mm -hmm. And I'm a firm believer that the reason that they are burning out is because they are working so hard every day and they're leaving the office not knowing what impact they made. And so yeah. Go ahead. Well, when you and some of the the nonprofits you've worked on, what are what impact has it had when you get full buy-in into the great game? Oh, it's a it's a huge impact, and it's a completely different change in their mindset and the confidence and the camaraderie and the teamwork that is built among the staff is. Uh, nothing like I've ever seen before. And um, I think that, you know, retention is so important right now in every company and nonprofits are, have less of an edge um, if they're not paying competitively. But if you can get that feeling every single day of your employees coming to work, knowing exactly what they need to do and leaving saying, I won today. I hit all my goals and I know that in the future that's going to contribute to our critical number and that's going to lead to increased mission and I'm going to get incentivized for that. There's nothing better for an employee to, to lead to their satisfaction. Um, we're really good at, at telling stories at nonprofits. Um, and we still opened every staff meeting with a, with a mission moment, you know, to tell stories. But taking it to the next level and knowing how those stories transfer to the actual impact, the greater impact, uh, was really a, a huge shift. And I think that's very impactful to a nonprofit. So a lot of times I just start 
asking the question, how do you define winning here? How would you know if you left work today, if you won or not? And for program staff, that's sometimes a really hard question for them to answer because they're like, well, I, I change people's lives every day in different ways. So how would you know if you did that better or worse? Uh, and so getting them to kind of think about that, I think, is very rewarding once they start um, unpacking it. Um, you're right. We uh, work at nonprofits because we want to make a difference. And we have the mission, usually the mission of the organization is the reason that we're there, no doubt. And so what we're trying to do here is say exactly what, what you were referring to. Can you make an impact? And what will that mean in the future? So it goes back to the strategic planning that we usually do with our board and how many people actually include all of their staff in that strategic planning. And so what, what I tend to see happen is the board and the executive director will go into a room and they'll look at all of the ways that we're going to impact our community and the results that we want and tie it into the bigger picture and how this is solving a huge community issue. And the impact is so clear to them. And then they come back to their offices and they try to tell their staff uh, what that is. And the staff is missing the connection there. They're missing, you know, okay, so I'm now providing counseling support for victims of child abuse. And I just heard this horrific story from a victim and I helped them overcome uh, a huge barrier that we've been working on for weeks in their head, and they are now going to be a more productive citizen because of that. But they just see that they helped that one person, and they know they have that intuition that they're going to be better off, but they're not taking it up to, they're not connecting it a lot of times to the bigger conversations that we really reserve for the executive director and the board of directors. And so I really think it's just connecting those everyday mission moments that our staff experience every day with those overall goals uh, that the, the upper half is making for the organization. And so we, we call it high involvement planning because we want every layer of the organization to have involvement in those numbers and those goals. And if they can't see how their actions every day are affecting it, then there's no, I believe it will lead to a lot higher burnout in, in those cases. Okay, it sounds like maybe there's sound. I can hear you now. Oh yes, that's much better. Much better, okay. So yeah, I was um, I was just asking you about um, you know I want to talk about the critical number because Jack talks a lot about identifying the critical number, the one thing that the organization needs to track that will help it make the most impactful forward progress. Metrics are hard for most nonprofits to figure out and get right. Typically, they measure money in and money out. What are some critical numbers that you've seen nonprofits start tracking that have really been kind of important and helpful for them in, in uh, implementing the, and, and you know, the great game. Yes, absolutely. That's one of the biggest things we had to adjust a little bit from the traditional great game of business is just that there has to be two critical numbers and I almost look at it as a scale. On one side, you have to have a financial critical number, and then it has to be balanced out by a program critical number. Mm -hmm. um, and we have, we really call that no money, no mission. So if you don't have the financial stability, your mission is going to fall. And if you don't have uh, powerful metrics and a mission uh, where you can articulate the impact you're going to have, your financials are going to 
uh, not be replenished because there's the donors demand that. And so um, you want you really you're looking for a balance of both. And so when we're looking at the financial critical number, we're really looking at where is the instability in your organization. And so uh, this could be cash reserves. So some people uh, live in uh, unstable grant conditions. And so looking at how to get that cash uh, at a safe level, where if a grant is delayed or if a grant uh, payee, uh, for example, here in the U.S., we had a government shutdown. And if an organization is 100% reliant on government money during that shutdown, they, if they did not have reserves to sustain them, they were in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, look, so for that type of organization, some type of cash reserve would most likely be their critical number. Um, a traditional nonprofit would typically um, do some type of net income number. I've also had nonprofits look at their unrestricted money. Um, mm-hmm. And so sometimes you have, you could compare that to how organizations look at diversification, right? They don't want one customer. Uh, they want lots of different services and lots of different customers. Um, and I see that a lot in nonprofits where they have one source of revenue. Um, and so looking at, Uh, And it's restricted for one program. So looking at getting more unrestricted uh, revenue might be their critical number because they know that's that will affect their sustainability. So I always ask them, what is the number financially that will keep you in this community for the next 50 years? Mm. Um, And then they can they can answer. They know what their threats are so they can start talking about what would threaten their livelihood in the next 50 years. And then on the flip side, the program number can be very challenging for some nonprofits because they provide so many different services. And so they're like, well, we have 15 different KPIs that will tell us if we're providing our mission or not. And that can get a little uh, confusing uh, because they won't know if they won at the end of the year or not. Uh, So Habitat for Humanity is a great example. They were a client that we worked with and they said, well, everyone thinks we build houses and building houses cannot be our critical number. And I said, oh, interesting. Why is that? They said, because uh, we build a handful of houses a year and that's only a tiny bit of our budget because the the homeowners actually help pay for that house. And we, here's all the other services we provide. Um, and so they do a lot of home repair. They do a lot of keeping people in their current and existing homes. Um, and so that was a huge learning moment for everyone in the organization. And so they actually ended up uh, creating their own new metric. And they put a value on every service that they provide to mm-hmm. any. Uh, client that they have. And so they actually shopped it in in the private sector market and said, we're, you know, redoing the plumbing on this house. Here's how much it would cost if they had to pay for that. And so they called it PIPS. They called it Project Impact Point System. And every project that they did throughout the year, they assigned points to. And they wanted to measure how many points they got in one year. And I always call it the press release test. So at the end of the year, can you put your critical number in a press release? And what would that press, would that press release be meaningful to you, your donors, and your community? And so for Habitat for Humanity, they were able to say at the end of the year, Habitat provided X amount of services for the uh, clients in our community. And that was very powerful because the community recognized that those dollars that Habitat provided those services for much more efficiently than if they shopped on the open market and hired subcontractors, uh, those translated into uh, services that those, those uh clients would never get otherwise because they were unable to afford them. 
Um, and then, you know, you can expand on the press release after that and say, you know, then that keeps them in their home, which keeps them out of, you know, all the other things that can lead to homelessness. And so really painting that picture um, just by focusing on that one number, though. And so that's what we always say is, you know, we can't have 15 different services with 15 different numbers. Let's how can we tell a story and get it all rolled up into one critical number for your programs? Hmm, that's great. So you mentioned you've done the great game of business with churches. So what have churches done with uh, critical numbers? Yeah, so churches are interesting because they um, a lot of times don't want to necessarily um, talk a lot about financials. Yeah, um, <laughs> they of course share their financials with their uh, congregation and most likely with a church council or board or whatever yeah. they have. But they really just want to show that they will, you know, have service on Sunday and they can keep the lights on. They don't necessarily want to talk about um, having any quote extra. And so pretty common with any nonprofit, but I feel yeah. like it's particularly sensitive with churches. Yeah. Um, and I really just push the churches to go beyond that. And it, it, just like you said, it's not about money in, money out. It really is about what you can do in the future with that extra money. Mm -hmm. And I think when they start seeing that, it's a little, maybe it's the guilt, right? In a church of like, mm -hmm. oh, I have extra money. Someone might accuse me of doing something wrong with it. And so just being really open about here's what we're going to do with that extra money next year, in five years, in 10 years. Here's how that extra money is going to help us get to the next level or, you know, build our new building or expand our services. Um, I think just knowing, like being very open with it, I think we tend to hide it instead of talking about it, which probably mm -hmm. makes us look even more guilty. Whereas yeah. if we would just say, we did have extra money at the end of this year because of your generosity, and here's what we're going to do with that extra money. Yeah. Um, I've seen that really build even more momentum. Um, I think you get in trouble when you don't have a plan for what to do with the extra money at the end of the year. Well, and, and, and I mean, you'd see this is that, you know, long-term financial stability is a uh, sustainability is a huge issue for most nonprofits. And that's why, you know, um, you know, kind of, you know, what is our net income and what are our cash reserves becomes a big, you know, you can see where that would be a very important um, critical number. And how are we going to grow that number, you know, so that we are sustainable long-term because, uh, you know, most, most nonprofits operate, you know, year to year, month to month, week to week. <laughs> and, you right. know, a lot of them don't have a plan for building up cash reserves. And it's almost like cash reserves are bad or evil, you know, but they need them. If they're not, if they don't have them, they're not sustainable long term. So, and, exactly. and, and, and measuring program impact is really, really important. Like you talked about, um, you know, Habitat for Humanity. I mean, uh, you know, that because the, if you measure your program impact, then that gives you stories to tell. <laughs> um, right about uh about the impact of the organization and you can go out to you know your donors and your you know your your funders and say look this is the difference we're making in this community and if we weren't here you know where would these people get this help and um and to sort of get you know nonprofits to think through okay how do we quantify our impact <laughs> and to do that you know uh in a in a in a solid way where the data is not, it's not just anecdotal, but where they can track the numbers and they can say, here is the tangible impact we're having. Um, that's that, that stretches a lot of nonprofits, at least in my experience that does. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I, mean, I think we're all familiar with the term return on investment and talking to our donors about making an investment, but we are a little shaky about, actually calculating it yeah. and i think that's really uh the hurdle for nonprofits is because to 
calculate a return on impact, you need a number yeah. to put on it. Yeah. And um, I can't tell you how many times I've heard, there's just no way we could put a number on what we do. Yeah. Well, and you, were, uh, you and I were talking earlier before we started recording about the, uh, the uh, podcast that I did with Wendy Agar in Australia, you know, who runs a, yes. you know, a, 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 you know, an addiction treatment center, you know, and how, how they got, you know, their impact numbers straight and how that, you know, how yes. that impacted even how they ran their programming and did their intake, you know, with people who came into the program and the, the profound impact that it had, you know, and I mean, uh, she, you know, she's, she's pretty rare in terms of, you know, their organization in terms of quantifying it like that, but they did the hard work of drilling down and saying, okay, what are the numbers that really matter and how do we quantify the impact we're having? And I mean, when you can say, you know, a year after people have graduated from our program, they're living on their own, they've reconnected to their family, they're holding down a job, they're still sober and clean. Um, man, that becomes a powerful story when you go out to ask somebody to support your organization because you've you've got the data then to say, you know what, your money, the money that you give to this organization, it's going to have a real impact. Exactly, exactly, yeah. and that's the the kind of sophisticated <clears throat> ask that I think so many nonprofits are missing. Um, you know, we're really good at telling a story to pull at the heartstrings, but then if there's a follow up question about the impact or the return it, it we tend to just tell another story yeah and so I think that exactly um you know what what she's doing and what I've seen so many of my clients do but it, it is about putting in the hard work and I think a lot of times we get into that situation where we uh don't think that we're capable yeah. of learning the numbers. Mm -hmm. And I even had one of my social workers say, I specifically went to school for social work so I would not have to learn numbers. Yep. <laughs> this is making me really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, bit by bit, taking it off, you know, the best way to eat an elephant is one bite at a time. And that's really what we did. Um, and what, what Wendy did too is just let's just track one number yeah, and let's see how that moves. And then yeah. they start coming to you. I've noticed this other number over here. Yeah. So when we had all of our case managers start tracking their own numbers, they started seeing that some people had better numbers than others. Yeah. And they started seeing, asking questions. How are you getting that number. If mm -hmm. our job is the same job, how are you getting that number? And then they started sharing best practices. And again, it wasn't, if it was all, uh, well, if you hit your number, you're going to get a raise. And if you hit your number, you're going to get a raise. There's no incentive for them to help each other. Yeah. But in this system, since we're all working toward one number, there was a huge incentive to yeah. help the underdogs or to help the people who, who were struggling. Um, and so, you know, just tracking it, you could get that visual of where we needed to do better yeah. and, um, and where people could help. And instead of rewarding the top performer for being so wonderful, it really motivated the top performer to go help other mm -hmm. people. Well, and I remember when I, you know, when I interviewed Wendy, I mean, she said that the uh, government agency that funded them wanted to know what their bed occupancy rate was. <laughs> and who cares what your bed occupancy, you could be 100% full, but if you're not having an impact, who cares whether you're 100% full, you're better off to be 50% full and all 50% of those people who are there are, you know, being helped to get off of their, you know, to, to, kick their addiction and get reestablished and live a, you know, a, a healthier, more productive life. Right. Right. Exactly. And just, you know, that's a, an instance of someone else picking your critical number for you and picking yeah. the wrong one. Yeah. And so what a great learning opportunity to say, well, we have to track this number because that's what they want, but what's wrong with this number? Mm -hmm. And then, okay, so then what number would be better for us mm -hmm. to track to really yeah. get our impact? And that's a lot of the conversations I have, you know, with nonprofits. And I think they're so used to reports for grants and funders mm -hmm. that they're like, oh, we, we already produced so many numbers. 
But when you really drill down to the critical number, almost every time it's one that's not in those reports. Yeah. And so uh, how valuable is it to, to get them to, to piece that all together and see what, what would really make a difference? Well, and that's where the number that they, the numbers that you started tracking when you were with uh, Big Brothers Big Sisters, you know, made so much sense because who cares how many connections you have if half of them are, you know, being canceled, you know, I mean, and right. especially if they're not going out to the full year because you know that the greatest impact you can have is from the longer term connections. And so starting to track that makes uh, makes a lot of sense and, uh, you know, is the important thing to track because that's that's where you have the real impact. Right. And I started taking very common business metrics and trying to apply them um, to the organization. So rework is a term that private businesses use all the time. Um, So a roofing company goes out and puts on a roof and it leaks. They have to go out and fix it. They have to pay for the materials and pay for the labor and the opportunity cost of working on a new job. They Mm -hmm. know the exact cost of how much rework costs for them. Mm -hmm. And so when I brought that same exact concept to my staff, I said, what's our rework? And they looked at me like, what are you talking about? I said, well, if we do all this work to recruit a volunteer, we interview them, we uh, match them with a child, we have the introduction meeting, we support that match for three months and then it closes, and we're starting all over with that child again, that's rework, right? They're like, yeah. I said, how much do you think that costs us? Mm -hmm. And you put a number to it. And um, it's very eye-opening. And I said, that's how you affect the financials. Not by taking a pay cut, not by not turning in your mileage. Reduce your rework. Because that's more expensive than bringing you know, post-it notes from home. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Well, listen, thank you so much for your time. This is very fascinating. Really appreciate, uh, you know, kind of the the opportunity to connect with you and uh, yeah. And the work you're doing. And I mean, makes me think about how I take the great game of business stuff and apply it with some of my clients and help them get down, you know, drill down on some of this stuff because yeah, uh, I can see where it may 